Amen. What a joy it is each week to come together and to sing and to pray and to read the scriptures and to study God's word together. It is a a blessed privilege of God's people to be able to gather week in and week out. And I pray that it's one that we do not take for granted for their brothers and sisters throughout the world who suffer greatly to come together to worship. Friends, and we can come to do it week in and week out without any fear of suffering or really persecution, no legal action to be taken, and what a great joy, what a great privilege. If you have your Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to do something a little bit different than typical today, and that is we're going to kind of zoom back out and take a, take a look from the 40,000-foot view of the evidence of Christian freedom. Okay, so That's what Paul has been talking about once he's got into chapter 5, and really it goes through his final exhortations in chapter 6. So the text we're going to look at today, and really over the next several weeks, is Galatians 5, verses 13, through chapter 6, verse 10. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and again, we're going to stay at a high level in this to kind of get an overview picture of what does it mean to be free in Christ? What is the evidence of Christian freedom? So with that, I want to go ahead and read these verses, and and then we'll kind of do a little bit of setup, and then we'll look at kind of the three overall headings that we see in this text that we'll look at going forward as to how we might live our lives to show that we are free from the power the penalty, and are striving to be free from the presence of sin. So again, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 13. Friends, this is the true and the everlasting word of the only true God. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who are of the household of the faith. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word, and now let us go before him in prayer. Our Father, we come before you, and just even saying those words gives us pause. Our Father, we have been adopted by the work of your Son, Because Christ came and went to the cross and bore our sins in his body so that we could die to sin and be made alive to and in his righteousness. So our Father, we come before your throne now and ask for grace and help in our time of need. Lord, where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we come now to hear the words of eternal life. We come now to hear of our Savior and to learn of how we might live in such a way that shows the glory and the majesty and the transforming work of Christ. So Lord, would you please give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready and eager and able to respond to the truth. Lord, would you humble us under your mighty hand? May we take heed lest we fall. May we give all right and proper attention and focus to the truth of your word. Lord, would you help us to strive earnestly to hear from your truth? Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Lord, we would ask, we would pray, and we would pray this boldly in the name of Christ, that your spirit would come and move in power among us. Lord, would your spirit come and put strength in our stride? Would your spirit come and open our minds and our hearts? to receive what you would have us to receive from your word today. Lord, help us to put away distractions. Help us as we learned 
earlier this morning, to flee from all forms of idolatry. Lord, idolatry is so dangerous in this time right now because it's those idols that will take our attention from the glorious truth of your word. So Lord, help us to flee from that idolatry so that we might hear from your truth, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased and glorified in all that we say and all that we do in this day. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning King. Amen. So you will recall as we've launched into Galatians chapter 5, we've looked at two overarching exhortations in these first 11 verses. Paul has told the Galatians to stand firm in the faith, and he's told them to keep running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So stand firm, and so keep running well. Paul wrote this to the Galatians because they faced this grave, immediate, imminent threat of false teaching, the false teaching of the Judaizers who sought to pull them away from the gospel. And now facing these threats, Paul turns to exhorting the Galatians to live out their faith. He exhorts them to stand firm against false teachers by living out their faith. That should remind us of Paul's words to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We resist worldly desires. We resist false teaching by living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Matthew Henry summarized this by saying that the apostle here comes to exhort these Christians to serious practical godliness. He exhorts them to serious practical godliness, Henry said, as the best antidote against the snares of false teachers. If you want to stand firm in days of falsehood, pursue serious, real, genuine, practical godliness. And this practical godliness has worked out in many ways, and that's kind of why I wanted to, to pull out a little bit this morning and look at this from a higher level to, to understand the whole of what Paul is saying here, and then we'll spend several weeks digging into the details and the specifics of Paul's exhortation here. He urges the Galatians to live out their true freedom in Christ. He tells this, them to live out this freedom by walking in selfless love, by warring against the desires of their flesh. He tells them to do this by walking in the Spirit and by loving one another, by pursuing unity of spirit, because they're pursuing Christ and holiness together. So we can point that to ourselves. We can bring that home and kind of give ourselves a launching point, a, a primary thesis statement of what we want to gather and study today. We see that the ongoing evidence of our freedom in Christ is marked and is seen by our battle against the flesh. So we must, to, to evidence our freedom in Christ, to show forth that we are free from sin, we must battle against the flesh, 
We must walk in the Spirit, and we must love one another. Those are the three headings that we're going to look at today to to understand kind of the the overall point of Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. This is what we want to consider. We want to paint a picture of what it looks like to be free in Christ. So we'll sketch the outline today, and in the next several weeks, we'll fill in the details of what does it mean to be free in Christ. Now, before looking at that freedom, I want to talk for just a moment about how we become free in Christ. Talk about the cost of our freedom. To motivate right living, we must, uh, to motivate the right living in light of the cost, we must understand the cost. If we live right without the right motivation, then we are sinning. We are being legalists. So we want to understand what it costs for us to be made free, and then we want to be motivated and be driven by that cost and by that Savior. Paul told the Ephesians, you may be familiar with this in Ephesians 2, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They walked according to the prince of the power of the air. They were sons of disobedience, living in submission and obedience to Satan. They were slaves to their sin. But God, being rich in mercy and love, made them, made us alive together in Christ. He made a way for us to be redeemed and ransomed from our hopeless and hell-bound path. That way is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came. He took on the form of a servant. The creator of all things came to his creation in the form of a creature. He learned obedience. He learned obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was unstained from sin. And yet he paid for your sins. He was treated as one who was cursed because you are cursed. He was treated as one who is cursed so you could be freed from the penalty of your sin. In the garden, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, you recall, Jesus was in agony. He prayed, Father, if you will, take this cup from me. But he said, not as I will, O Father, but your will be done. That cup that Jesus was asking, if there was any possible way to be taken, was the cup of God's wrath. Because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, and to be a ransom, he had to bear the wrath of the Father. He had to drink down the full cup of God's wrath in your place and in my place. So we ask the question, was the cross the cup of wrath that Jesus drank? We've talked about this before, so you may know where we're going. And the answer is yes and no. That was the place at which Jesus drank down the cup of God's wrath. He suffered tremendous physical agony to pay in in the payment, in the process of making the payment for our sins. But consider what happened there at the cross. When, When Jesus went to the cross, he suffered silently. Undoubtedly, there was agony. Sure, there was groaning and 
moaning and, and cries of physical pain as he was whipped and scourged and had nails piercing through his hands and feet. But it was right before he gave up his spirit, right at the end of, of those hours of physical torment, that Jesus hangs there nailed on the cross and cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So was the cross the cup of wrath? Well, yes and no, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there is that point where the cross was God's wrath. But far greater than that is the fact that Jesus bore the unrestrained, unlimited, unheld back, that's a new word, unheld back, the unrestrained wrath of his Father in your place and in my place. And dear friends, that was when he cried out. He cried out when he was experiencing the divine wrath of an infinitely holy God against infinitely sinful people. That's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when we consider our freedom in Christ, the ideas that you see in some evangelicals, that freedom in Christ is an open door to walk in rebellion is just utterly detestable. When you consider the price that was paid so that you could be called free in Christ and for someone to go use that freedom as an opportunity for their flesh is utterly detestable. It should make us sick to our stomach to even consider such an idea. And so as we consider the evidences of our freedom in Christ, may we consider them in light of the cost. May that cost in one way motivate us in how we live. Now, we don't live in in subjection to the cross. We live in rejoicing light of the cross. We look to that and see the love of God in Christ displayed. So may that love of Christ fill us and motivate us to live lives that evidence our Christian freedom. So again, now there's three headings that we want to consider today, and I don't even know if we'll get to the third. We'll, we'll at least mention it and skim past it, but there's three headings to look at. We'll begin looking at this idea of battling against the flesh. To show that you are in Christ, you must battle against the flesh. We see that in verses 13 through 21. We see it especially in verses 13, 16, and 17. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So when we consider battling against the flesh, Friends, what we have to understand is this is the context of war. This is warfare when we battle by the Spirit of God against the flesh that remains. MacArthur tells of of an ancient practice that I think will serve as a helpful illustration and contrast because all illustrations, as we said, they all come to an end. And so it illustrates on one hand and contrasts the Christian life on the other hand. 
So in ancient times, as MacArthur tells it, I've not researched this myself, but I take him at his word on this, that when someone would commit a murder, one of the punishments to that murderer would be to take the dead body of the person that they put to death and tie that body to the living person. And as you can imagine, if that person, for one, their life would become a tremendous struggle because they're carrying around literally dead weight. But dead bodies decompose. They decay, and if you're constantly living attached to that decay, that decay will ultimately overtake you as well. And so in one way, that is an illustration of the Christian life. We are made new in Christ. We are raised to newness of life in Him. But consider Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 verse 24, Paul says that we live this new life in Christ while we remain in the body of this death. It's the war of two natures. We, we are alive in Christ, but our remaining flesh still wages war against us. Our remaining flesh will wage war against us until our last breath. So we have to understand this in the context of warfare, that we will fight the flesh and its desires until the Lord calls us home. Paul says, you are called to freedom, freedom, brethren, and do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. No matter how free we are in Christ, and it is ultimately and eternally free that we are in Christ, our time in this life will be marked by the battle of two wills. Christ in us through the Holy Spirit of God at war with the body of this death in which we remain. Now, this is where the illustration does come, no pun intended, to die. This illustration falls short because in Christ we are promised victory. Every person who had a dead corpse attached to their body would die, likely as a result of that dead corpse. But dear friends, we have victory. We are promised victory not because we are good, not because we strive hard enough, but because our Savior rose from the grave in victory. That is why we have victory. That is why we fight and battle as victors and overcomers. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John writes there, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, John says? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So yes, we walk and we battle in the body of this death, but we know that we will overcome because we walk in genuine faith in Christ, and Christ has the power to to save. So this evidence of our freedom is seen that we battle against the flesh. The flesh produces self-centeredness. It produces envy. The flesh produces strife and division and anger and on and on and on. But what marks out the Christian, what marks us out before the watching world to whom we want to show our transformation in our life in Christ, what marks us out is that we battle against those things. Not only do we battle against those things, but we have increasing victory. We're being conformed to Christ to his glorious, holy nature from one 
end of glory to the next. We are being made more and more like Christ. So as we battle against the flesh, we will know, we will experience victory. Now, perfection, of course, will not be attained. You will not be perfect in this life. Holiness is the goal. Holiness is the goal with the understanding that you will not know perfect holiness until the Lord calls you home. And we must fight this war knowing that one day we will win. We must fight this war daily, moment by moment, knowing that ultimately we will win. But we also know that there are times that we are going to lose. There are times that we are going to succumb to temptation. There are times that we will indeed sin. Dear friend, fight, labor, battle against sin in light of the price that was paid for your redemption. Fight and battle because Christ went to the cross for your sin. We give evidence of our freedom in Christ in our battle against sin. We give evidence by taking up arms every day to fight against the flesh. So now you say, how do we do this? We, we must battle how do, we, how do we fight in this battle against the flesh? That's the second heading we want to consider. We fight that battle by walking in the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit, verses 16 through 18, and verses 22 through 26. Pick up at verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please, that you desire. And then verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So could our charge be more clear here? We battle against the flesh only by walking in the Spirit. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That is a promise. That is a broad promise from God to his people. If you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will not let you down. So what does that mean? That means when you sin, you're not walking in the Spirit. And it means when you don't sin, you are walking in the Spirit. If the first evidence of our freedom in Christ is that we battle against the flesh. The second evidence is that we battle against the flesh in the correct manner with the right tools for battle. We, we fight by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. A spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life is the only way to fight the Christian battle in which you find yourself. If you try to fight against Satan in your own strength, you will fail, you will lose, and you will sin. Fight spiritual battles with spiritual tools, with spiritual armor, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18, Paul makes this interesting comparison that really fits in well with the, the overall story of Galatians, uh, the, the book of Galatians, really. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under the bondage of the law if you are led by the Spirit. The, the legalistic life under the bondage 
of the law is a life that is lived by the flesh. It is lived in and according to the flesh. It is a pursuit of external righteousness rather than a pursuit of internal transformation that leads to holy living. So while external conformity to Christ is absolutely a mark of genuine faith, we, we must know that that mark falls short of the biblical standard if it's not driven by proper motives. You can obey every word of the entire scripture, but if you do it in your own strength and not driven by a love for the Lord, then you have missed the mark. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, you will then in turn love me. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't want to obey because you're not loving, that you should go and disobey because then you're sinning twice. But what it does mean is that our obedience to the Lord and to his commands and to his word must be driven by love. The Apostle John, again, in 1 John chapter 5, he wrote that this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, if we love him, are not burdensome. So if you walk by the Spirit, you are not held in bondage by the law because you are living the Spirit-filled life. And that Spirit-filled life shows itself in love of God, which results in obedience. So how does this freedom and life in Christ reveal itself practically? What are the practical outworkings? Again, we'll skim a surface here that we've got to come back to and look at in more depth. Verse 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. If you desire for the world around you to see the transformation brought about your life because you are free in Christ, you must desire to display the fruit of the Spirit. They are looking to see if this fruit is evident in you. Now, will you display this fruit perfectly? Absolutely not. You will not display perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect kindness, or perfect gentleness. But these fruits will be evident in your life if you are in Christ and his spirit is in you. But we also have to pause there and we have to understand, I just said the word fruits, I said it intentionally because we want to make the point that Paul doesn't say fruits here. He says, but the fruit, the fruit of the spirit are these things. It is a singular term because these things, all of them, must be, ought to be, must be, growingly present in the life of a believer. If you're in Christ, you have all of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is given to you in fullness, and you should display growing measures of all of this fruit. You're either in Christ and led by the Spirit, and you display this fruit, or you are of your father the devil, and you don't show these fruits in, in fullness, in completion. MacArthur says, says this this way. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is always produced completely 
in every believer, no matter how faintly evidenced its various manifestations may be. It's always displayed completely, though the manifestations may be more limited in some cases than in others. You will be more mature in some areas than you are in other areas. Some of you are more patient. Some of you might be more peaceful. Maybe you're more kind. Maybe you're more loving or more joyful. But all of these things are present in every believer, and they must be growing and increasing. We could consider this another way, kind of flip the idea on its head. Those who are not in Christ, those who are unregenerate, may show some of these fruits. We've all known unbelievers who are kind people. We've all known unbelievers who might be patient or gentle or show some level of self-control, but they are not in Christ. They do not have all of these fruits coming together as the fruit of the Spirit. For believers, all of these fruits are present and growing in our lives, and they flow from the Spirit. They do not flow from our own power. So how do we walk? How do we know if we're walking in the Spirit? It's because we're displaying and growing in the fruit of the Spirit. If you're in Christ, that fruit will be evident and it will be growing. Now, to walk in the Spirit and to wage war, we also see that walking in the Spirit and waging war will be proven in our relationship with others. That's another evidence of our walking in the Spirit. Verse 25 and 26, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He said, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Paul urges this outworking because this is one of the greatest evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Are you walking in unity, in peace, and in harmony with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're not, these, this fruit of the Spirit, these various fruits, must grow and be, be made greater in your life. This is, I think, the most plain outward working outward depiction of the fruit of the Spirit in your life is how you relate to someone else. If you know somebody or if you yourself are unable to get along with anybody, if you're always at odds with people, how are you displaying the fruit of the Spirit? How are you showing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? If you can't get along with somebody else, you are not displaying really any of those things. The outworkings of the deeds of the flesh are that which cause contention. The outworking of the deeds of the flesh are that which cause division and disunity. But the fruit of the Spirit shows itself in humility, in deference to others, in a genuine identification with the joy or with the sorrows of your fellow believers. And so really that can kind of launch us and lead us into the third heading that we'll talk about at least briefly the idea of loving one another, loving one another. So we've looked at the, the three overall headings of the evidence of Christian freedom. You will battle against the flesh, you will walk in the Spirit, and you will love your brethren. Now, we could say, as, as we have said, that 
to show the fruit of the Spirit is going to result in love of the brethren because it will. It will be clear. It will be evidence. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, launches into 10 verses here talking about our interactions with one another. And we're still in this idea of the Spirit and the flesh. Paul is not introducing a new theme here. He's continuing on to show the practical outworkings, the practical evidences of Christian freedom in the Spirit-filled life. The first such way that we love one another, that we evidence freedom in Christ by loving one another, is by walking in a restorative, burden-bearing, humble love. Look at verses 1 through 3. Brethren, if anyone, of chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, brethren, if anyone As caught in any trespasses, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. It says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So the law of Christ, the the law to love your neighbor as yourself, is fulfilled in this idea, a gentle, sin-bearing, sin-restoring love for the brethren. If you truly love your fellow saints, you will humbly, gently, and patiently seek to restore them from sin. It is not loving. We will Likely as believers, with, with the way the culture around us lives, with, this will be a statement we will have to make until the Lord calls us home. It is not loving to sweep sin under the rug. It is not loving to see someone who claims the name of Christ or someone who is not in Christ, but especially someone who claims to be in Christ. It is not loving to let them sin and not hold them accountable. Now, that doesn't mean that we go nitpick every little thing, but if we see a pattern of life, especially an unbroken pattern of life that is sinful, the loving thing to do is point out that sin and patiently and gently and humbly seek to restore the sinning brother. Patiently, humbly, and gently. And of those aspects, I think the humility might be both the most difficult and the most important. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Have you ever been yourself deceived and tried to point out a sin in another person's life? I know I've done it, Uh, and I'm sure I will likely do it again by maybe not knowing all the facts of a situation or wrongly assuming a motive or any various type thing, but, but you think, hey, I, I've got this situation understood. I'm going to address this. I'm going to be, you know, Paul says in verse 1, those who are spiritual, those who are walking in the Spirit, I'm going to be the one who walks in the Spirit. I'm going to go restore this brother. Paul says, if you think you're something when you're actually nothing, if you think you know everything when you actually don't know everything, you have deceived yourself. Paul says that we must be gentle And humble, and here's another one, personally introspective when we think about restoring a brother or a sister. Each one, at the end of verse 1, each one looking to yourself 
so that you too will not be tempted. To restore, brother, all these things, a brother or sister, all these things have to come together. Ultimately, you have to be walking in the Spirit. That's why Paul says, you who are spiritual, you who are displaying the fruit of the Spirit and walking in the power and in submission to the Holy Spirit of God, you go and you restore your brother or sister. Do it with patience. Do it with gentleness. Do it with humility. So now, Paul goes on. Um, one, one point to grab onto here is he talks about sharing in the good things with one another. That's, that's one way that we evidence our freedom in Christ. He says in, in verse 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. He says in verse 10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. To, to show our freedom in Christ, we seek to do good to one another. That is an evidence of life in Christ, that you want to do good to a brother or sister in Christ. You know, I, I thought it interesting as you read this with, with the social justice battle that rages on in evangelicalism, Paul makes a very distinct point here. And if we're not careful, we might miss it in verse 10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Okay, stop there. That's where some people stop. Let us do good to all people. But what does Holy Scripture say? It says, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So if you're out there, and, and again, we, we can't be legalistic about this, but just to set up a scenario, if you are serving two people out on the street for every one brother or sister in Christ that you're serving, you've got this flipped on its head. Again, th this is not a hard and fast rule that for every $10 you give to a homeless person, you have to find a person in the church and give them $20. But the concept that our primary duty is to do good to those who are of the faith, those who are of the household of the faith, that has, I think, a distinct emphasis on the local church. Pour your life, pour your strength, pour your energy and your resources into the local church. That is an evidence that you are in Christ. Now, Paul also says here that there is a danger. He, he gives a warning that there is a danger of growing weary in doing good. He says in verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So friends, while it might at times seem hard or maybe not rewarding or like your, like your love and your investment is falling on deaf ears or a resistant person, friends, the scripture says, so what is good? So in the spirit, do not grow weary. Keep doing good and you will reap in the same manner that you sow. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Verse 8, for one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't grow weary. Seek to do good to one another. Seek to live in a way that honors and pleases the Lord. And if you do that with a right motive, 
you will in due time reap in the Spirit. So now let's kind of pull back out. Let's, let's tie together what we've looked at today, try to put a little bit of a bow on this, and then we will continue on forward in the weeks to come as the Lord wills. We've seen a high-level look at this glorious exhortation by Paul as to how we live a life that shows that we are free in Christ. There's much that we have yet to learn, but hopefully we have a roadmap now to, to tell us how we're going to get to the end of this section. We see that the war rages on. Satan will not cease in his battle and in his striving against you, even when you claim the name of Christ. He will wage war against you until your last breath. Dear friend, you must battle against the flesh. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, we know that there may be some application there of this idea of, don't go to bed mad at somebody else. Go, go handle your, your issues with a brother or sister. But I think, as Justin Peters has pointed out in the past, more applicable to this context, Paul is telling the Ephesians, don't let the sun set in your battle against your sin. Don't let your battle against sin end as the day ends when the sun sets. If you cease, if you slow down in your striving against sin, you give the devil an opportunity. So do not let the sun go down on your anger and in your battle against sin. So what is our hope in that? How do we do that? We walk by the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. The Lord gives us a helper to reveal sin, to reveal the truth, and to lead us into all righteousness. Walk by the Spirit. He is a helper because he helps us. He helps you. He helps me. To walk in the Spirit is to display the fruit of the Spirit. To display the fruit of the Spirit, as we read earlier in John chapter 15, we must abide in Christ, and His words must abide in us. That is how you live the Spirit-filled life, by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. To walk in the Spirit, you must know the Spirit of God. To know the Spirit of God, you must be acquainted with the mind of the Spirit. What is the mind of the Spirit? It is the written, revealed Word of God. To walk in the Spirit, you must know the Word of God. And finally, friends, we must love one another. The battles of this life are too difficult. The journey of this life is too long. It is too hard. There are too many obstacles for us to go about this on our own. We must love one another. We must do good to one another. We must share in biblical fellowship. We must seek to interact with one another in love and gentleness and patience and humility. We must seek to confront sin and we must seek after genuine restoration when a brother sins but we must stand firm. We must hold the line against that which is not right, and we must confront those things with the spirit of love and gentleness. Friends, the root of all of this battle is where we started, and that is that you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, his spirit is not in you. 
If the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you cannot walk in the Spirit. You must come to Christ by faith. The Lord grants faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But, friends, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So come to Christ by faith and then walk in and with and pursuing Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The war we fight must be fought in the power and the grace that the Lord gives. For His grace is perfected in our weaknesses. His grace is sufficient for all of our needs. It is His grace, as we sing, that will lead us safely home. We walk and we war and we battle, but it's the grace of God at work in us. So friends, may we evidence our freedom in Christ, but I hope we understand that freedom in Christ is not this freedom that gives us license to sin, but it's a freedom that is displayed by living a life that honors God, that obeys His Word and loves our fellow saints, loves our fellow man, our fellow image bearer of God. So may we strive and may we walk in If you'll stick with us for another six, eight weeks, maybe into the new year even, we'll wade through Galatians 5 and Galatians 6 and look at the the nitty-gritty details of walking in the Spirit. So with that, let's close with a word of prayer.